And I can attest to every time I get the opportunity to hear Dr. Garber speak, um, I prayerfully leave a better human. Uh, Dr. Garber is a Geneva grad. He's a golden tornado, as all the great ones are. Um, and uh, he did his master's degree at Goddard College and Ph.D. at Penn State. Uh, Dr. Garber served from 2017 to 2020 at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, as professor of marketplace theology and leadership and as director of Regent's Master of Arts and Leadership Theology and Society program. Prior to his time at Regent, he served as principal of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture in Washington, D.C. He's the author of three books, The Fabric of Faithfulness, Weaving Together Belief and Behavior, Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good, and his most recent book, The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship, and Work. He's an advisor and consultant for a diverse range of businesses, foundations, and educational institutions, including Dendaco Corporation, Mars Corporation, the Murdoch Trust, Bloodwater Mission, and Telus Group. His long commitment to the conviction that culture is upstream from politics led him to contribute to the book, Get Up Off Your Knees, Preaching the U2 Catalog. All of us Gen Xers get very excited when we hear the words U2, uh, and inspired him to participate in the founding of Wedgwood Circle. A native of the Great Valleys of Colorado and California, Steve is married to the lovely Meg, who is with us this morning as well. They have five adult children whose own callings have taken them over the world. Will you welcome uh, warmly one of my favorite authors and teachers, Dr. Steve Garber. So, Terry, you have to be quiet now, okay? So, <laughs> good luck, okay. Uh-huh. Though I would have to say that I have loved Terry's commentary on all of life for most of my life. So, I would go a lot of places to sit in the room with Terry Thomas and just say, well, just talk about the world, Terry, okay? I'd like to hear you. Um, um, so. Thank you all for being here today. It's a strange time to be alive, isn't it, to live under the conditions of the plague? And, uh, you know, who among us thought that would ever be true? I began reading a book called The Plague as an undergraduate at Geneva College by Albert Camus. And uh, I've lived with it the rest of my life, even taught courses about it in the last year when I was still in Vancouver at Regent College. And um, and here I am living in the middle of a plague, you know, hoping... Someday, somehow, it'll be almost to the end of the plague. But thank you for coming. I realize in some ways you've taken your life in your hands to be here. So good for you. Won't you be my neighbor? Some years ago, I was sitting in the offices of WQED in Pittsburgh. And uh, at the end of the day, the receptionist had gone home already. And I was just waiting for somebody to come out I wanted to talk to. We were having a meeting. And... And all of a sudden, who should walk by the office, the office, but Mr. Rogers himself. And I thought, if he just would have looked at me with his own Mr. Rogers smile and said, won't you be my neighbor? It would have made my life, really. Um, it didn't happen, but I fantasized, actually, in the years since then. But he did that, and I actually was asked by Mr. Rogers himself to be his neighbor. I would have liked that, but it didn't really happen in that way. But is there a man that's more loved from the world of television 
the complex story of technological glory and ruin over 70 years now, the Mr. Rogers, thoughtful, kind, generous, just, a lover of God too, someone who believed the Trinitarian God that you do, someone who believed that this is God's world like you do. For him, no distinction between my regular life and my Christian life, but instead a radical reading of the coherence of life, of all of life and labor and learning. Someone able to make sense of who he was and why he was, and therefore what he did with his life, to a watching world that more often than not was intrigued by his winsome goodness, his open-hearted embrace of the neighbors near and far. We could call his life a seamless life. We could say about Fred Rogers that he learned to see seamlessly the whole of life, all that he believed about God and the world, facing the challenge of an increasingly secularizing, pluralizing, and globalizing world. A seamless life, learning to see seamlessly. St. Benedict, 1,500 years ago, when Rome was beginning to fall apart to disintegrate the implosion of the Roman Empire, he began to see something, wasn't quite sure, had no categories, no historical lens to say, it's all falling apart. But he began to say, what could I do to hold on to what I want and think is important to me and to God and the world? He called some of his young friends and students to join him up into the mountains in Italy, and they started a little community. And the watchwords, the credo for this little community of Benedict, were ora e labora, ora e labora. I'm not a Latin scholar. Maybe you aren't either. But to pray and to work, ora e labora, to pray and to work, to pray and to work. My grandfather, Gilchrist, was a family that immigrated from Scotland a few hundred years ago and moved to Scotch Mountain in New York State and seemed an appropriate move to make from Scotland to Scotch Mountain. And, and they lived there for a few generations. And then in the late 1800s, my grandfather, one of a larger family, decided that, you know, he wanted to move west and to see what was out in the rest of the world. And uh, as a 21-year-old 20, or so did that and moved far, far across the country from New York State and uh, ended up living the rest of his life there and dying there. But along the way, the third child of his family was my grandfather. Um, and my grandfather, uh, one of about six kids, I suppose, he was the third in the, in the line. Um, of all of his kids in this family, he was the only one who made his way back to the East Coast, almost to the East Coast, at least to the eastern part of the U.S., and ended up in the Beaver Vale at Geneva College. Um, so here was this, you know, kid from Michigan, and they marry, and then they move out west again. And uh, my mother was born in New Mexico, and then Colorado, where she grew up, and my grandfather started off life as a math teacher and a principal of a school, and the Ku Klux Klan came to Farmington, New Mexico, and began to push and shove as they have been known to do, and terribly so in the history of, of America. And finally, they put pressure on my grandfather and his own being principal of the school, enough so that he felt like he could no longer stay there, and uh, moved to Colorado, uh, where his head, he had family, and and uh, rest of his life spent his years buying and selling cattle in Colorado. And that's the grandfather that I knew. My first memories of summer were in a little ranching community in southwestern Colorado between Durango and Cortez, the very corner southwestern part of the state. And uh, I thought it was a wonderful place to grow up and my summertime adventures. Uh, and I spent most of my summers with my grandparents in a strange way. I would take the Santa Fe Chief train from California across the you know, Mojave Desert into Arizona and into 
into New Mexico. My grandfather would pick me up and we would drive up into Colorado where he would, again, that week be buying and selling cattle. Um, I know that, you know, one time in his life, as I was a little 10-year-old boy sitting beside him in a cattle auction in Cortez, Colorado, that the auctioneer stopped the, his auctioneer auctioneering and said to my grandfather, one of the buyers out in the you know, arena, saying, how much are these cows selling for this, Mr. Gilchrist? And I was 10. I wasn't, you know, more than that, really. But I remember even as a 10-year-old thinking, so you're the auctioneer. My grandfather's one of the buyers. My grandfather's been a math teacher, pretty good at math, more than I ever got to be, really. He could have just quickly, you know, given a number that the auctioneer would have taken to my grandfather's advantage, um, and he would have been able to buy cows at a better price that day. My grandfather, though, was known among his peers as somebody who knew the business very, very well and kept up with the numbers you know, exactly week after week. Um, but I knew that, on the one hand, that was true of my grandfather. But I also knew that, you know, night by night with my grandmother, we would actually get on our knees after supper and maybe after watching Gunsmoke or something. And we would actually read the scriptures together, get on our knees, and we would pray uh, my grandfather leading us in prayer night by night, year after year. Um, and in my grandfather's own life, I began to see, in fact, you know, what later I began to prize uh, in my life, learning about people like Benedict, you know, uh, a long time later. Ora e labora. Ora e labora. To pray and to work at the same time. And you see, it's not as if sometimes in my, my life, I go off in the day and I want to be a Christian and more seriously pursuing my faith Christian. And then the rest of my life is my regular life. It's just what I do day by day. But somehow, how do you have a life together, which in fact holds it all together, where to pray and to work are held together with coherence, with a certain kind of unusual seamlessness? I saw that in my grandfather, actually. Uh, To pray and to work, the heart of vocation lived to the glory of God and in service to the world. Well, you already knew this before. I'm going to tell you this to you today, but... It's a messy world, isn't it? It's a very messy world, isn't it? My grandfather's life was in a messy world of people willing to push and shove and to lie and to cheat. And, you know, and sometimes people were willing to actually hold on to their integrity of their own convictions about God and the world and, you know, to say something back to the auctioneer. The price is this this, this week. You know, it really is this price. Um, and I'll tell you that. Um, and then to be the kind of person where, you know, you were known for that kind of insight and conviction and, and, and conscience and integrity. Well, if Colorado's history, my grandfather's history is a messy story, a messy history in its own way. The history of all of life is like that, isn't it? Um, it's never neat and clean, sometimes terribly not so neat and clean. Think about where we are today along the Beaver River, the Beaver Vale, as we are in western Pennsylvania, as we are. Before the Scotch, you know, came and the Irish came and English came and the Poles came and the Czechs came, the Italians came, and began to populate places like Beaver Falls. There were native peoples here, the First Nations peoples of this part of uh, the world, um, who themselves were always at war with each other, at wanting access to land and to water themselves. It wasn't neat and clean for them either, actually, at all. But the Erie people, the Delaware people, the Monongahela people, the Seneca, the Shawnee, the Susquehannock, the Tuscarora, and more. These names that you live with day by day, and you call this well, the Tuscarora, and we call this you know, Susquehannock, and we call that Erie. And, but, of course, these are all names which were named about people who lived here before we got here, really. And their history with each other was messy. It's a messy history, really, a messy history. 
like our history is a messy history. Well, then the French came, and then the English came, and then you know, led by William Pitt the Older, you know, the Prime Minister of England at the time, and then his son, William Pitt the Younger, began to watch over England and its interest in the rest of the world. And as I said, and I'll say it again, it's a messy world, and history is messy, necessarily messy. It is that, actually. There's nothing about the history of these hundreds of years of Western PA, which is a neat and clean story, because it's a messy story, actually. But William Pitt the Younger uh, had a good friend, maybe his closest friend in politics in England at the time, was a man named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was somebody who was from his own family that could pay for votes in the early, his early 20s, and he got into Cambridge University, and what you did if you wanted to get into Parliament, you got the money together, probably your own family's money, and you went out and you just paid people to vote for you, and that's how you got into the Parliament. That's just the way it worked at the time. Uh, we have a more sophisticated you know, money laundering, I suppose, in the 21st century, but it still is the same idea, isn't it, really? Um, he paid for votes, and he became a Parliament, member of Parliament at age 24. Uh, at age 25, 26, 27, he was already seen as the most eloquent, powerful speaker in the English Parliament. Uh, it was amazing as a young man that way, seen that way. People began to talk about him as having his own unusual prospect for the future, of being somebody who would rise up to his own power in time. And then at age 25 or so, he took a trip one summer in a little carriage around Europe, the continent, just to see the world that he had not seen before. And he had hired a, a companion to talk to him in those days, uh, who was a, a Cambridge professor, uh, funny how those things might have worked, who was an honest Christian person. And the hours and days of travel across the continent and talking and talking and talking some more, somehow in the great grace of God, Wilberforce came to true repentant faith and came back and was persuaded, of course, now that he was a truly serious Christian man, he should probably leave politics because politics was so messy, messy world that it is. And he had a surprising conversation with, with John Newton, author of Amazing Grace and many other things, who said to him, don't you dare leave politics. I think God's called you to be here to do what? To take up the abolition of slavery, which for Newton, of course, had its own painful history autobiographically. It's a more complex story. and I don't have time to go into all of it here. Um, but I want you to know that the Wilberforce's story has had a profound influence in my own life. Um, I have lived with his ideas, with his work, in a way which would surprise most people. I even brought a, a book with me to show you. Um, it's from about 1800 or so. Um, and actually, there's a letter from Wilberforce inside of it, uh, which is a fascinating, probably the most prized book I have in my library is this book. Uh, but it was Wilberforce, who on the one hand was somebody who had broad social, cultural, political, economic concerns and kept at them for the whole of his life, not just raising them as one might do initially because I'm young and eager and you know ambitious, but actually kept at them and kept at them and kept at them. Um, but this book is a story actually of a book about why it is in fact that if England's going to become what it could be and should be in the world, English people have to move beyond nominal faith to a live embrace of honest faith, a deeper sense of repentance and a deeper sense of, of a true knowledge of God. Um, that was who Wilberforce was. He was somebody who, on the one hand, was politically astute, politically able, but somebody actually born also of a deep, deep sense of a true knowledge of God. Ora a labora, we might say. Probably 35 years ago, I was sitting in a Swickley, Pennsylvania living room. Uh, this was not my world. I didn't even know there was a Swickley probably before I was invited to, to go there that day. 
because I wasn't from around here that way, but I was asked to come to a, a lunch and a conversation after lunch with a group of business people from the Pittsburgh area. This was the home of a Pittsburgh industrialist uh, at the time, somebody with a lot of responsibility for employment and products throughout Pittsburgh and the rest of the world. And they were all people of serious faith who had not thought much, though, about the relationship of their faith to the life which was theirs, to the work which was theirs. And that afternoon, we had a conversation about William Wilberforce. It's the first time I really took his ideas to heart, thinking he thought that, he did this. Really? It was, it was like that, actually? Um, well, I could say a lot more about all that, but each person that day, in their own ways, were there to seriously explore the meaning of vocation for life in the world, not only personally, but publicly. And yes, Wilberforce was there too. But Wilberforce's political vision was born of a true piety, born of a true public sense of vocation. There was a scene seamlessly at the heart of Wilberforce's life. So, scene seamlessly. I want to offer you just a few windows into that possibility, that reality. For people that I've known in different ways, people who, who I've met along the way, some who become dear friends to me, but whose lives and labors are gifts to us. I think when I was still a student at Geneva, I was asked to come to an event at Chatham College in Pittsburgh. Um, there was a man speaking, and somebody said, you should go listen to this guy speak. And I found a way to get a car to get in with some other students to hear Robert Lavelle speak. He was a banker in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. And uh, I went into this place that was brand new to me, Chatham College, and found my way to the place he was speaking, and room full of people about my age from throughout the Pittsburgh area. And I found myself in probably 15 minutes of the first part of the presentation thinking, so who are you, Robert Lavelle? Because you do think seamlessly about the work of banking, don't you? I never even imagined somebody with that kind of insight and conviction and persuasive power speaking about the role and purpose of banking in a city and in the world. An African-American man, native of Pittsburgh, the Hill District, Along the way, began to have this deep, deep sense that, in fact, that if the people of this place are to flourish, there's going to have to be, have, be access to housing to buy, be able to buy your own house. And the Pittsburgh banking of the day, of the 1970s and beyond, really, was, was called redlining. And if you lived in a certain part of the city, Mellon Bank would never, ever loan you money for a house there, of course. Really. Never be possible. Um, well, Robert Lavelle decided to create a bank, Dwelling House Savings and Loan. People who lived in the Hill District because he said, if we don't have access to buying houses ourselves and having a sense of belonging here and you know, responsibility here, this part of the city will never, ever be a place for human beings to flourish. He became a friend of mine over time, and when we moved from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C. over 30 years ago, I took our three older kids to his office and I said, you know, we had about five dollars in our savings account probably because I didn't have much money at all, but we took it all out, you know, and I had my three kids with me. They put on the desk in the office there. I said, Mr. Lavelle, please tell them about yourself and why you do what you do. They were just little, little people, but I wanted them to hear about this good man, this very godly man who had committed himself to the flourishing of the city. In those same years I got to know about a woman named Margaret Hodges went to the Pinocchio bookstore in Shadyside one evening with my family. And, and she was there, and she had just published a new book uh, called St. George and the Dragon, which won a Caldecott medal that year. It was illustrated by the wonderfully gifted children's illustrator, Trina Shart Hyman. But a beautiful story, a wonderful story, a gorgeous story, really. St. George and the Dragon. 
I bought it and, you know, inscribed, gave it to my second child. Uh, Elliot was his name. And he was about four or five years old at the time. And first time we read the book through, we got to this page where I turned it and all of a sudden the dragon was there in all of his, you know, terror. Remember Elliot just wanting to close the book right then because it was just too terrifying to see the way that Trina Shark Hyman and Margaret Hodges had captured the terror of the dragon. I think the word is oeuvre. Oeuvre. I don't speak French. Maybe some of the rest of you do. It's O-E-O-U-E-V-R-E. But it's really the body of someone's work. Um, the body of someone's work. If an artist, the, the length and breadth and scope of somebody's work. If St. George and the Dragon was part of her work, she wrote books and books and books and books as a professor at Pitt. But also somebody worshiping in an honest church in the Pittsburgh, in the Pitt neighborhood week by week. Somebody who in some ways wrote books about all kinds of things, about Moses and about St. Christopher and St. Patrick. And somebody who in some ways did not have any kind of split down her life where you said, here's my sort of churchly things. Here's my rest of my life things. Here's my sacred things and my secular things. Here's the, you know, the stuff I really care about. And then here's the things I have to do. But somehow for her, it was a sense of, I worship God week by week. I do the work of my life week by week. And somehow I'm holding them together in a way which actually serves God and serves the world at the very same time. It's to see seamlessly see. It's to see, in fact, that the stories we listen to and take into our hearts form and shape the moral imagination, which is ours and which in some ways has consequence for the rest of the world. Well, the third friend I would talk about is a man named Walt Turner. Walt Turner. I noticed in your little, in the brig downstairs of the student center yesterday, you sell his milk and his tea and, you know, other things. Turner Dairy, of course, is his family's company. But for four generations, they've been selling the best milk possible to Pittsburgh and beyond. When they go to the state fairs and the milk competitions and dairy places like Wisconsin and Minnesota and California, who wins the gold prizes, the blue blue ribbons? The Turner Dairy, actually, for the best milk and the best milk and the best milk. There's been a sense of pursuit of excellence in producing the very best milk for years and years and years. But if Walt Turner was here today, I was able to say, well, Walt, tell about this. You would be surprised because within probably five minutes, you would think, he thinks so seamlessly about his life. You can see on the one hand, he's been the president of the Board of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis for years and years, deeply formed by honest faith, but somebody who has lived his life trying to safeguard the milk for the city of Pittsburgh. He knows that I love the chocolate milk they produce. And so whenever I go to visit him at the dairy in Rhode Island Road and in Penn Hills, he always gives me a whole cooler full of, you know, chocolate milk and, you know, black and gold. Because what's the black and gold? It's the Turner version, Turner Dairy version of Arnold Palmer. If you don't know the story, Arnold Palmer and Turner Dairy first started off together, actually. And they decided to put lemonade and iced tea together. And then Arizona Tea bought out, you know, Turner Dairy on this particular product and, they ended up friends still, Arnold Palmer and the Turner family. But I love Walt Turner, and I learn from Walt Turner. But you see, for him, there's a sense of a calling to a city in and through the cows, which are theirs, but for the common good of the city. I've walked with him through his dairy, listening to explain his, the family's long commitment to excellence in the service of you and me. Not unlike Johann Sebastian Bach, their bottles of milk are remembered with sola Deo Gloria, and the world is graced by the family's good work. Well, Wilberforce, 
runs through my life, his story. He shaped how I think about things. His own example of somebody working at an aura, a labora, has been profound for me. Probably 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago now, I was part of a conversation for maybe a, a year or two on the telephone, conference calls with a music producer from Nashville and a businessman from Kansas City and a political strategist from Washington, D.C., and then me, the professor. And there was a painter from New York City, too, as a part of this. And we talked and talked and talked about this. Um, and finally decided we would call our conviction that the culture is upstream from politics. We would call it the Wedgwood Circle. Why Wedgwood? Because, you see, Wedgwood was a businessman, Josiah Wedgwood. His family made fine dinnerware for the English people. They still do. Um, and Josiah Wedgwood, when they began to realize that politics, by, as politics, was never going to change the slavery question in England, they began to think through in their own terms this reality, the argument that, that culture's upstream from politics. And so they began to talk it through and think it through, and somebody decided, let's create an effort to address child labor problems in England today. Let's address education problems. Let's address labor problems and agricultural problems and, and on and on. And they created 60 different efforts, societies they call them, to address the social ills of English life of, of the time. Realizing that unless the English people saw things like slavery as a problem, the politicians never would actually. It's the way it works still, I, I would argue. So we called our effort the Wedgwood Circle, trying to bring into the same room people who were responsible for telling the stories and singing the songs that shape our life in the world. Um, and some of the project, projects over time have, are ones you know about, uh, whether you like them or not. The Narnia films were a project of the Wedgwood Circle, and the Amazing Grace film of Wilberforce's life was a project of the Wedgwood Circle. And more recently, the film Silence, the Akira, the Shizako Endo, uh, novel-based film as a project of the Wedgwood Circle. There have been, you know, a lot of efforts, mostly things you wouldn't know about, actually. Um, but filmmakers and novelists and painters and singer-songwriters and graphic novelists and, and more, not creating Christian art for Christian people in that parochial sense, but songs and stories for the whole wide world. Because you are Western PA people and in the Steeler nation that you are, a project right now that's really moving forward and with energy and hope and not all done yet is a f film about a Penn State football player named Wally Triplett, who, from what we understand, was maybe the first African-American player that really rose to some prominence in Penn State in the 1940s. And the story goes that probably, 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 we are Penn State, you know, grew out of the team's defense of Wally Triplett's presence on the team when they went at a perfect season that year, went off to Dallas to play a bowl game, and SMU would not play them in the bowl game. Because why? They had an African-American player on the team. And the Penn State players said, we are Penn State. We will do this together. So Wedgwood Circle is involved in bringing together funding, and your local hero, Franco Harris, is a part of all this story, and trying to figure out a way to bring a story like that into being for the sake of the wide world, a story about courage and you know, vocation and, and the way things ought to be in the world. Not a story, again, about a Christian person doing a Christian thing in that parochial sense, but a story that everyone might be able to listen to and learn from. Some of you would know, you know, the work of Pixar Productions, probably maybe the best storytellers in Hollywood these days. All animated projects, of course, and their own wonderful work as, the, as it is. But think about the most recent film called Soul, uh, done by Pete Doctor, who's the head of Pixar Productions. 
Pete Doctor could walk into this chapel and sing all the songs you sing, confess all the things you confess to be true about God and the world. He is a person of honest faith. But he has not had ever the sense that he ought to go work to make Christian films for Christian families. He's wanted to actually, in language I used last night in the presentation, how can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand? So think about his film Inside Out. Profound story about the human, about what it means to be a human being in the world through the eyes and, and heart of a little girl who's upset by having to move from Minnesota to California. A deep, profound story about what, who are we and how are we and why are we and how it gets worked out in the world. Soul is a different story, uh, a different story. In some ways, it'd be fascinating before this year is all done for you to do a filming, a showing of the film and talk about the net view funding that Eugene College has from the Lilly Endowment. Because what is the story about? It's a story about vocation in a fascinating way with depth and insight and, and probing quality. It is a film about the very nature of vocation. A jazz musician ends up teaching in a local school, always wanted to be a player himself in a club at night and, you know, and the story, dramatic as it is and fascinating as it is, is really the story about what happens to his life and who does he really want to be. And, and these three great questions, I would say, of vocation for everyone everywhere. So who am I? And why am I? And what am I going to do with my life? Those are the three great questions of vocation for everyone everywhere. And they're at the very heart, actually, of the film Soul. I could talk a lot more about all that than I have time for right now. But let me tell you a story about working at Carnegie Mellon University or being part of a discussion there some years ago. Um, I was doing my own PhD studies at the time, and this is you know, over 30 years ago, and I was meet week by week with a group of PhD students at Carnegie Mellon in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon. So they were all people doing double E or microengineering degrees or computer engineering degrees and at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. We would meet week by week to talk and think through the questions of the disciplines which drew them all together for their studies. And sometimes we would read in this area, other than this area, this area. Now we were reading a book for some months on the meaning of technology, called The Future of Technology. Um, and uh, I heard the door open behind me one day in the middle of our discussion, and nobody walked in, and we went on with our discussion. But I remembered that it happened. We finished our discussion for the day and then went on back to home and a week later came back to the same place and had the same digging deeply into the discussion again. But somebody joined us for the first time that, that next week, and he was an Australian professor who'd come to see me to do a sabbatical year to write a textbook on artificial intelligence. And he joined into the discussion, a thoughtful, interesting, serious man. And at the end of the hour, he said to us with a little sheepishness on his face, he said, you know, I came looking for you last week. I heard there were some Christians meeting in the Robotics Institute Thursdays at noon. But when I opened the door and I heard you discussing technology, I just assumed that you weren't the Christians. Now, dear people, you know, what was his assumption? You see, it was an assumption born of something less than seeing seamlessly. Something actually more marked by a fragmented sense of self, a fragmented sense of what God wants done in the world. Because what would Christians be doing meeting in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, talking about what? About Christian things, wouldn't we, so to speak? About more religious things, so to speak. About more spiritual things, so to speak. But the idea that we'd be talking about what? Technology? It's so surprised to me, we're sure that we weren't the Christians. 
Well, you see, not much of Ora a Labora, good man that he was, actually. If I began talking about my grandfather in his own life of Ora a Labora, I want to offer you at the very end a story about my father, Ora a Labora. My grandfather moved from the western part of America to come here to the Beaver Vale and then going on back to the west. My father actually was born on College Hill, and I grew up there and told me about tales of swimming in the Beaver River as a boy with his friends and called the Beaver River Crawl, they said, because you did like this, keeping the crud out of your face as you kind of went through the river. You know, That was my father's growing up experience here in Beaver Falls in the 1930s and 40s. Beaver Falls High School, and his principal says to him one day, you need to go to college. And he said, I'll help you. And my father, sort of, unlike his family history, decided he would try that. He came to Geneva College and ended up here, went off to the war and came back and met my mom. And they moved to Colorado eventually, which is where I was born. Um, but my father spent his life, you know, a million miles away from the industrial center, city that Beaver Falls was. And he spent his whole career as a scientist for the University of California, a plant pathologist was what his work was, which was looking at the diseases of plants in California's vast agricultural industry. Sometimes a good thing, sometimes not a very good thing. Uh, Half the nation's fruits and vegetables and fibers are grown in California. If you didn't know that, it is true. My father was a part of that for the whole of his life. But I know that when I watched my father live his life, um, that we would pray day by day uh, for all that I think and say and do. My father would talk about, you know, when he walked into the laboratory day after day, he would actually pray for insight into the questions which were his that day. Not only to be a nice person, not only to be a graceful person, a kind person, which was important, of course, in a place where others worked around you and with you, but actually to see into the meaning of his work, to understand the relationship between what he was pursuing this week and this year with what he did last year and the week before that and what it might mean for the future of his work. It is somehow not just to be a Christian at work, but actually to seek Christianly into the very nature of his work, into the meaning of his work. That has shaped me in my life. I know when I think about my work and the writing I do and the work that's mine to do, I learn from my father that I really do pray for, to be able to have eyes to see into the very meaning of the work that I do. The questions would have clarity for me, that I would have insight into the questions which I'm thinking about this day and this week and this year. But I also knew that my father, when he went to work in the world, the people around him, came, they came from all over the world, really, to, to listen in to my father's research because it had consequence not only for California and America, but for, for Israel and for China and for Russia and for Australia. And those places he went with his work because the insights he, in some ways, labored to begin to think through as a biology botany major at Geneva College grew over time into insights into the nature of diseases health of plants that had consequence for the rest of the world. For my father, it was never in the sense that this is my work and here is my worship. But there was a sense of avodah, this beautifully rich Hebrew idea of a life held together. The whole of my life, of ora e labora. You see, to see seamlessly. These have been the people who shaped who I am. I hope that somehow in these days and weeks and years you are at Geneva College, that you find at the end of the whole shebang that, in fact, you become somebody who's able to, <clears throat> to see more seamlessly the coherence of all of life, of all of labor, of all of learning. 
Amen. We have we have a couple of minutes for a few questions, and so uh, hands are shooting up. I love it. Um, we'll come over here. I think this mic, there we go. The mic is on. Um, uh, Dr. Garber has been asking people to share their name and where they're from in the last couple of engagements. So here you go. Thank you. My name is Noah Freeman. Uh, Noah like the boat, Freeman like Morgan, no relation. Uh, I just had one quick question since you, uh, oh, I'm from Freeport, PA, just a mile down the road. Uh, I do have one question since you went to Geneva. It's kind of a silly one. But did you uh, live in Pierce or Memorial during your time here? <laughs> it is a silly, a silly question, isn't it? Um, one year I lived in Memorial and I moved off campus. All right. Thank you. I did have friends who lived in Geneva Arms, as it was called then. I don't know if it still is or not. But I had a terrible bike accident one night there in my first weeks at Geneva. And uh, I ripped apart my Achilles tendon. It was severed so terribly. And uh, my first months in Beaver Falls, as the days got longer and or shorter and shorter and darker and darker and colder and colder, was being on crutches with a cast from my hip down to my toes. And uh, I remember walking on these pathways from January through the spring, having to literally learn how to walk again. I, I had my foot had stopped; it wouldn't work anymore. Um, but I did live in Memorial Hall. Yeah, my name's Tanner Dobson. I'm from Beaver Falls, just a few miles on the road. And uh, my question is, you were talking about the Penn State football movie. I'm not sure if I missed it, but do you know the- Wally title? Triplett is his name. And do you know the, the title of that movie? Well, it's not a movie yet. It's be, it, there's a script, a screenplay written, funding's being brought together to bring it into being, but it's not not yet that, I'm done, so. Okay, thank you. We can follow it. So. We should show it here, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. But you see, just to say that, I mean, every movie you've ever seen in your whole life is somebody's idea. And they want to tell a story about something that matters to them. You know, whether it's a good story or not a good story, whether it's a story of, you know, it's honest and true, whether it's not at all, actually. And somebody puts up money to make it happen. Uh, so whether the stories are stories that, you know, are for the flourishing of a city and a community in the world or whether they're for not. You see, that's why my friends and I created the Wedgwood Circle. We thought that there ought to be better stories being told not more parochial stories for Christians to watch together, but actually stories that might shape the heart and mind of a whole people, of the whole world, uh, to somehow tell truer, more honest stories about things that matter to all of us. Hi, I'm Grace. I'm from Oakmont, and I wanted to ask about the book that you presented, the one that you said was your favorite in your library. Can you just say its name again and maybe when it was published? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, you can find newer versions of it. This is like an old version of it, and I will just show you. It's not like this is grand, it's just, it just means a lot to me, and it's formed me, but this is actually the letter from Wilberforce that's inside of it. Um, it has an unusually kind of oddly long title for a book, like you think, this would never sell today. Like, it actually was a huge seller in 1800 in England. A practical view of the prevailing religious system of professed Christians in the higher and middle classes 
of this country contrasted with the real Christian life. <laughs> so, yeah. Not a very sexy title, but there it is. You know? I think you can find it in the version that they called it real Christianity. Hi, I'm uh, Mark Williams. I'm from Pittsburgh. Um, why do you think it's so prevalent or like what do you think is like the main reason why Christians tend to compartmentalize their lives instead of living seamlessly? Yeah, don't go for a long walk. <laughs> um, I think we're disposed to dualism as human beings. I think after the fall, uh, the broken brokenness of the whole cosmos, the created order, you know, the brokenness of Father Adam, Mother Eve. You know, we are their sons and daughters. I think that we're disposed to dualism, to fragmentation. You know, and, and I think there has to be somehow some unusual grace, whether it's a saving grace or a common grace of some sort, that actually gives us sensibilities that want to hold life together more coherently. Um, um, there's a story. This is a little bit mercenary. I make almost no money from these books, so it isn't like I make a lot of anything, really. But in this book out there on the table, The Seamless Life, there's a story about John Newton, actually, and about his own disposition to dualism, how he came to repentant faith as a slave trade captain, but kept trading slaves for years afterwards while having Bible studies on the top deck, top deck of the ship, the hold full of slaves in chains, making no connection between his worship and his work, his ora e labora. Uh, and so it's really a look at, you know, why that is a problem for all of us. The book, the essay is not disdainful of Newton. It's basically saying we're all like that, aren't we? It's a problem for all of us. Good question. Yeah. Hello, my name is Peyton Shell. I'm from Sharpsville, Pennsylvania. And my question is, why did you get into writing and specifically writing about faith? Why did did what? Why did you get into writing and why faith and religion specifically? Yeah. I don't know how to answer that in some ways. I, <clears throat> I always liked to read, uh, so maybe there was a bit of that in me. In my school in California, the school had a practice of bringing authors in when I was 10 years old and 11 years old and 12 years old, and it intrigued me to meet people who wrote books, so I had no particular ambition at the time. I remember just meeting, thinking, huh, you actually wrote a book, did you? That's interesting. You know? um, I've actually collected the, right, the books of these authors who came to my school, so they're in our living room today. They're shelves of books by Leo Politi and Ralph Moody and people like that that shaped me as a boy. Um, um, I think that I, you know, um, I began to have a sense that maybe that, you know, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes when I put words together, the people read them, were interested in them. And I was surprised that when the publisher said about the first book, we'll publish it, you know, within about a few weeks after I sent it to them, they said, yeah, we'll publish this. And I thought, you will? Ah, that's amazing, you know. And then it's been surprising to find that it's had many, many printings over the years and been read all over the world. And, and now when I write, I realize that probably by God's grace, it'll be published in, you know, other languages and cultures too. Um, so I know that's true. So it's always a surprising grace to me. It's always like a thanks be to God, you know. It's a wonder, it's a wonder that it happens. Thank you. I am so happy to see more hands going up, and I'm sad to say that we don't have time to answer questions. But um, we did get the Pierce Memorial question in there, so what else do you really need? Thank you, Noah. 
Hey, um, Dr. Garber has said over and over again, he's invited people to come say hello and, uh, and he means it. So if you'd like to come introduce yourself, we have a couple of minutes until the next class comes in. Um, but for now, I'd like you to thank Dr. Garber just one more time for being with us this week. So, so, so Keith, just because I, you, you will not say no to me here, but I make, again, almost no money from these books. I, I would get enough to buy, you know, a loaf of bread or something like that. But the very, this is a book of essays with photos that I've taken. And the very first one is called A Beginning. It's a picture of my grandfather's saddle blanket, the one who bought cattle in Colorado. And it's a, a beginning to look at the idea of a seamless life. And so you get some sense. It's a book of essays, but also photos, which in, in their own ways are windows into, graphic windows into the essay that's been written. But this one is about my grandfather's one, about my father too. So if those stories interested you, there's more of that here. So thank, thank you, Keith. Steve.